So uh, before we started recording, we were just uh, talking, me and, and my wonderful co-host, Matthew Lesh, about whether or not I'm having a bad hair day. Um, and it turns out that actually being off for three weeks with legitimate COVID, as opposed to the, the lies that Matthew was spreading in the last podcast, mean you don't really get the chance to go out for a haircut. But, um, but Matthew's been very nice to me and said, I, I have lovely hair. Podcast. My name is Ethel Ash. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my reliable co host and head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and Dr. Steve Davis, the head of education at the Institute of Economic Affairs, the IEA. In this week's episode, we'll be start discussing virtual economics, the great realignment, and the reappearance of inflation. Depending on your point of view, being employed as a full time economist for a video game can sound like the coolest job title imaginable or the worst thing in the world. But in recent years, various game developers have been hiring economists to help manage the in-game world and experimental economists have been using video games as environments to test economic theories. Steve, I know this is uh, an area of your particular interest, in particular EVE Online. What do you explain for, for our uh, very well-educated, um, but perhaps not necessarily knowledgeable about this particular video game, what in the world is EVE? EVE is a massively multiplayer online game. Uh, with literally tens of thousands of players worldwide. Uh, And I say worldwide because one of its unique and central features is that everyone outside of China is on a single server. Now, that's, that's very different from most massively multiplayer games where you have separate servers for different time zones for obvious practical reasons. Uh, In EVE, everyone in the planet, apart from the people in China, is on the same server, which means that Uh, you have much larger numbers of people to interact with. Now, the nature of the game is that basically you're playing flying spaceships and doing all kinds of other cool stuff uh, in a galaxy called New Eden, uh, which is divided up into uh, thousands of star systems with even larger numbers of planets and other objects. And essentially, it's a kind of huge virtual world, an entire galaxy in which thousands upon thousands of players interact with each other and do all kinds of stuff. And the key other feature of it is that this is something like a Hobbesian state of nature, or at least a very large part of this galaxy is like that. It's a place where there are virtually no consequences for doing anything. Griefing, as it's called in the online game, uh, doesn't bring any penalties in it, even the way that it normally does in other games. And so it's a fascinating kind of natural experiment for uh, the social scientists and the economists. The state of nature at its best. Uh, Daniel, is this one of those many games that, that you play or are you particularly familiar with? Uh, I feel like such, such an outsider here. Youths play these games. Yeah, as, as the Pin Factory podcast resident gamer, um, this is shockingly not one that I've played at any great length. I did download it about a year ago and gave it a go, but I think I'm more interested in the the kind of observing it and listening to some of the unbelievable and economically interesting stories that come out of this game as opposed to the actual gameplay itself and i imagine steve you're fairly similar here this is where you turn around and say i've actually clocked up ten thousand hours on eve online daniel i'll have you know no 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 uh, i want to have a life actually um <laughs> it, was, it was something like five hundred thousand people playing on it like three hours a day it seems like a, a very big commitment it is indeed you know it, it involves things like 
get taking phone calls at three o'clock in the morning being told you have to log on because a major battle has just broken out and they need you to take part. So no, I'd rather not do that. Also, the interface is incredibly complicated and seriously dull to look at. Uh, it's only when you get seriously into the game that it becomes addictive and compelling, but it's really interesting to observe. Yeah, let's let's unpack that a bit as much as it's interesting to talk about uh, how weirdo ga- some gamers can be. Hello, Daniel. No, no. <laughs> um, what are some of the what are some of the economic kind of implications you've been writing about this, Steve? Uh, what what have we learnt from Eve? Well, one of the what you what you have in Eve is a totally free market economy, and this is by design. Uh, the chief economist there has explicitly said that it's meant to be a kind of laissez-faire capitalist market, which he said is very like the one Adam Smith describes. That's his own words for it. What you have is raw materials, various kind of minerals, uh, and these raw materials can be uh, mined uh, by some players, sold on through open markets to other players, Uh, There's logistics corporations that haul the stuff around. Uh, It's then sold on to other people who in turn then take it to space factories where it's turned into stuff of all kinds, not just spaceships, but a huge array of products. Uh, All this is done using free exchange, free contracts between people. There's an enormous amount of money changing hands within the game, contracts being issued, markets which work in exactly the way that markets in the real world do. Uh, It's a fascinating illustration of how markets work, in fact. Uh, And then also all the kind of ancillary support and service industries that you'd expect to find in a real world economy. So you have casinos, uh, you have people who provide entertainment, people who provide professional services of various kinds. You've got pretty much the whole array of things. The one thing you don't really have is a stock exchange. Um, a security sector, but you've got the whole of the rest of the financial sector. And it's from the kind of libertarian point of view. So there's there's no minimum wage. I assume there's, there's an enforcement mechanism for contracts, but you can basically contract out whatever you like, however you like. How does that how does that work in practice? Well, in, in practice, it's actually remarkably stable. Uh, the kind of conventional way of thinking would be that in a world where there's no laws, there's no sovereign power, uh, you would not have a stable system. But in fact, you find that you do. Now, one of the reasons for that is that this is not a Hobbesian state of nature. It's a state of nature, but it doesn't work the way Thomas Hobbes's model does, mainly because the basic units in the game are not individuals. Now, there are lots of players who do play as individuals, particularly ones who choose to hang out mainly in what's called high security space, the bit at the centre of New Eden where uh, there's a kind of automated police force of non-player characters that destroys anyone who tries an aggressive act. But the majority of people cooperate with small numbers of other people to form corporations, which correspond to tribes or clans, more likely, uh, extended family groups in the real world. And these are the real units. So most of the work is done not by people acting as individuals, other than perhaps miners who do tend to be individuals. It's done by very small corporations, which range from, say, four or five people to up to about 100 plus Dunbar's number. Uh, roughly, as it's called in the anthropology, which is the number of close relationships that any human being can handle at any one time. And so corporations are the basic building blocks of EVE. And so the labor markets, uh, everything else like that, is done through these corporations. The corporations, in turn, cluster together to form what are called alliances. And these correspond, actually, to governments. They provide all the services that governments do. 
uh, not least a social security system. They basically will pay for your spaceship to be replaced if it's destroyed in a battle, for example. And they provide information services. They run a lot of enabling services that make possible very large, complex commercial relations. And this is all done to generate money, which then in turn is used to pay for the wars that rage periodically in New Eden. Uh, and so there are consequences and costs to breaking contracts uh, or committing fraudulent acts, uh, which is that you'll basically be hunted down and destroyed by other people. Uh, the cost, which is quite high, uh, and that's quite a serious cost in EVE in a way that it's not in many other games, because in EVE you acquire skills and assets in real time. And if those assets are destroyed, or if you are killed, although you will probably come back to life because you have a clone that you then reanimate, you've lost all the skills you acquired uh, in your previous, if you like, quote, life, unquote. And that's extremely annoying because it's real time and money that you've spent. It really does feel very kind of Ostrom-like in terms of its organisation, doesn't it, Daniel? That we're, we're basically, uh, without necessarily kind of any top-down um, governance structure, managing to organise ourselves effectively and, and deal with collective problems and uh, efficiently contract and whatnot. Yeah, I think one of the things that really stands out to me looking at the, what is effectively a kind of a, a sort of anarcho-capitalist system uh, in the virtual world is that you have comparatively little fraud to what you might expect. You certainly have some and you have you have plenty of, of wrongdoing. And of course, part of the fun of the game is is massive defrauding schemes. And there's various long read articles about how certain players have managed to defraud banks for billions of in-game uh, currency ISK but in the grand scheme of things considering there is basically no real world consequences really for, for most forms of fraud in the game you don't tend to get it it seems to be that the incentive structure has naturally emerged in such a way that it leads to to productive and and in the main um, peaceful production now obviously war is, is, is certainly a big part of the game and, and you can't discount that but just compared to what you might expect it's a lot more peaceful than the kind of brutal nasty brutish and short hobbesian state of nature uh, that's often described the other thing that really interests me i think or, or at least the potential of um, online worlds like this with, with advanced and uh, complicated economies is that it gives economists at least in theory a really valuable opportunity to have perfect information when evaluating particular changes um, so you know, if you're calculating, say, the consumer price index for inflation in real life, it's you're never going to have perfect information about that. You're never going to know the, the kind of complete price level. So you have to take an aggregate um, and an average of a bundle of a basket of goods. Whereas in something like EVE Online or indeed many other video games, you have this opportunity to literally look, look in at the code and, you know, the statistics from in-game and have access to all that information and be able to make very accurate measurements and, and predictions and that opens up a whole world of possibilities when it comes to running natural experiments on the results of, of various policies i mean eve online has effectively got you know it's employing uh, an economist and, and a team to work in a similar sort of way to a central banker might in terms of c 
curbing inflation, for example, or in some cases, as me and Steve were discussing before recording, actually causing uh, stagflation for various reasons. I'm sure you can go into that more, Steve, though. Very interesting. Yes, indeed. I mean, there is a big argument about this. So uh, Yanis Varoufakis, for example, who's employed by another game platform, has argued that exactly as you have, Daniel, that what you get in these virtual worlds is a kind of natural experiment model where you can run different things and see how they work out because the virtual worlds are much quicker than the real world things that would take years uh, in the real world happen in a matter of months in a virtual world so you can actually see how things play out on the other hand tyler cowan has argued that no they can't you can't use virtual worlds in this way and tyler's argument is that you can't get that perfect information because you see how things work but you don't really know what it is that's doing. So Tyler thinks lab experiments where you have uh, students in labs and you can actually control the conditions very, very precisely are what you need to get serious information. I agree with Yanis Varoufakis and I disagree with Tyler about this. I think that actually you it's true you don't get perfect information. I don't think the information that the game generates gives you that kind of actual access to perfect information of the kind you can't get in the real world. What it does enable you to do, though, is to see patterns and how the dynamics of processes work and play out. Uh, And it's a way to study a complex system, which is very dependent on initial conditions, has pronounced butterfly effects, uh, at a distance, at a remove, and actually see how things work out. And yes, all sorts of things can happen. So, you know, there's... there's, um, RuneScape managed to generate serious hyperinflation a couple of years ago, which they're now struggling to bring under control because they allowed too much money to be created by player versus player conflicts, which has led to exactly what the quantity theory of money would predict, serious hyperinflation. Mm, It's almost like we're going to be getting back to that a little bit later in the the podcast about... Uh, some some real world lessons from our from our games. I, I want to yeah, just unpacking that further, Steve. What are the some other kind of insights we've learned or economic theories that have been proven or, or disproven in, in the gaming world beyond Eve Online? Um, there's, there's quite a lot of studies these days into the econo- economics of games. Well, all kinds of things have happened. I mean, apart from things like monetary policy and inflation and also economic cycles. Uh, what you can also discover from virtual games and economics is the importance of innovation and the way in which innovation, almost by definition, involves people, in this case players within the game, creating something that's unexpected, something that the developers very often did not anticipate. Uh, and you can see this happening over and over again. You can also see stuff happening from uh, which is not economic but still very relevant. So World of Warcraft actually accidentally created a major pandemic a few years ago. Uh, which got completely out of control. And they tried various kind of measures, including all of the sorts of measures that we've uh, seen in the real world, such as lockdowns, but these didn't work in terms of preventing the spread of the pandemic they'd accidentally created. Uh, and eventually they had to actually shut the entire game down and reset it. That was the only way could do it, which is a bit alarming for the real world. <laughs> um, so, but, I mean, this was unlike COVID, a truly lethal pandemic, tainted blood, it was called, I remember right, Uh, And it was in danger of wiping out virtually the entire in-game population of World of Warcraft, which would have been a bit of a disaster. But the WHO were actually extremely interested in this, and they approached Blizzard, the 
company that runs it and got them to uh, give them their entire kind of data files and code files for the whole period because the whole thing about the way the pandemic spread and the way it reacted to different uh, control measures was extremely interesting and useful for them. There's certainly a lot to unpack there. Uh, my, my only last thought is, uh, it's about time we put some economists from games in, in charge of governments and maybe they could do a, a better job. Yeah, I think that might well be true, actually. And I think that they've probably got a more realistic idea about exactly what is going on in the world than some of the chaps we've got in central banks right now. Well, exactly, exactly. Well, moving on to our, our next uh, topic of discussion, more on to politics and the great realignment. <music> Boris, Trump, Brexit and the rise of populism in Europe have all been hailed as signs of a historic electoral and political realignment, with politics becoming less about traditional class divisions and more about irreconcilable cultural divisions, or so the argument goes. Steve, you've written extensively on this subject, including uh, an excellent book. And of course, uh, Matthew Lesh has also written uh, an excellent book on this from the Australian perspective as well. Um, But starting with you, Steve, could you briefly take us through the actual argument uh, that a realignment is in fact taking place at the moment? The the argument is that normally in stable periods of politics, Although there are lots of things that people disagree about, politics is organised around one major division, uh, an aligning issue, uh, sometimes with a secondary issue, which produces four broad blocks of voters. But there's always one big aligning issue. That issue is particularly salient. It matters to a lot of people. And that's because it reflects an actual division of interest as well as of ideology in society. Now, what happens is that every so often, the aligning issue changes, and that's when you get a realignment, because what happens is that a new issue appears which supplants or becomes more important than the old aligning issue. The old aligning issue may still be there, but it becomes minor rather than major. Uh, and, and what you find then is that people who are on the same side of the old issue may be on different sides of the new issue, uh, and vice versa. So you end up with a kind of shuffling of the deck in which all kinds of political alliances are broken up and new ones appear, new forms of politics appear. Now, the argument is that for the last, actually in some ways 100 years, but certainly for the last 50 or 60 years, the main aligning issue in politics has been economics, whether or not you support a large government or a small one, or a government that intervenes a lot in the economy rather, or an economy which is broadly organised through free market and free exchange. Now, that issue is still there, but my argument is that it's become secondary, and that the primary issue now, uh, increasingly, is one of identity, and that it's around a division basically between cosmopolitanism and globalism versus nationalism and localism. Uh, and associated with that, a whole lot of other issues. Now, I don't think this is much to do with culture. It takes the form of arguments about culture, but I do think there is ultimately a material division at the basis of it, which is essentially the division between globally connected metropolitan cities and the people who live in them, and small town and rural areas and the people who live there. And to put another spin on it, it's a division between those who are succeeding in the meritocratic labour market versus those who are not. Uh, And that kind of division is what then produces the cultural conflicts that are now driving politics. So that's what I think it is. 
I, I think my analysis is is pretty similar to yours, Steve. And the, the way I, I think about it is more or less 50, 60 years ago, if you were in the middle classes, um, you, you had a, something above a kind of manual job, uh, you very much voted to the right in politics. You, you voted for the Conservative Party in the UK or uh, the Republicans in the US or the Liberal Party in Australia. Um, and then if you were the working class, you voted to the left, you voted for, for Labour or, or the Democrats. And what we've seen, um, and I think you can think about it in historic terms, because this is not something that started with Brexit or, or Trump or whatever else, this has actually been a much longer running um, political trend. That, that I think you can probably go back to the post-industrial economy, uh, the, the rise of the, the kind of new left, um, post-materialist left. And then you had more or less a middle-class cohort um, who went to university who who ended up developing more kind of left liberal worldview. Um, they then started voting for the, the parties of the left. And that's why you get a kind of coalition initially on the left between segments of the working class um, and, and segments of, of the, the upper classes, the, the um, you know, Nottingham set or whatever you might want to call it, the kind of Blairite worldview. And then the Tories kind of respond or the Liberal Party Australia responds by saying, well, look at those elites that have now taken over your left-wing party. In fact, the, the Tories become, under uh, Thatcher, become increasingly a party that's attracting a lot of working-class voters, kind of the Essex set, um, and, and then even um, re, redone that, uh, like like, like our great man Daniel Pryor uh, in, in this podcast. Um, and, and so you get this kind of weird realignment where both parties are now attracting kind of different segments of the middle class and different segments of the working class, um, and that there's a political contest going on here where more or less class can't explain everything anymore. And, and you, I, I kind of see it as cultural attitudes, so, so what you view on a lot of cultural issues, not necessarily social issues, because particularly in the UK and, and Australia, not as much as the US, a lot of social issues, um, most people have pretty liberal attitudes to. Yeah. You know, we, we don't talk too much about homosexuality or abortion anymore, for example, in this country. Admittedly, there are still some people who are quite conservative on that, but I think the vast majority aren't anymore. Instead, it becomes, as, as Steve has identified, issues about identity, things like immigration or the yeah. meaning of British history. And you, and you get this huge divide between the left um, worldview, which has become quite liberal modernist, that everything is terrible about British history, and then the conservatives can win over a lot of conservative working class voters by saying, well, in fact, Britain is not an evil country and you should be proud of your place and where you live um, versus the kind of global set who don't need that attraction to place and they don't need that. They don't base, they base their identity more on their achievements rather than based upon um, where they happen to have been born or, or grow up and, and they're far more mobile. Steve, is this something that we can test via things like polling, for example? Because, you know, if, if you ask people, oh, what do you prioritise over, you know, a bunch of key issues from the economy to immigration and, and whatnot. Is that likely to, to kind of deliver the results that confirm or at least support this idea of a, a realignment? Or is it more difficult to, to really nail down and, and test in that sort of simple way? Well, yes, you can confirm this kind of thing with opinion polling. What you need to distinguish between is the sort of opinion polling where you take snapshot pictures of what people are most worried about at a given time. Because obviously, a lot of the time, people are going to be most worried about economic issues like, say, rising prices or rising unemployment or things of that sort. What you can do, however, is to ask people what it was that most determined their vote at an election. Uh, and that's where you've got a very clear uh, idea of this shift uh, having taken place when you actually ask people in the immediate aftermath, it has to be the immediate aftermath, by the way, uh, of an election, 
what it was that determined their vote from a list of issues. You can also do surveys of the kind that uh, various people have done in the UK, Opinion, for example, a uh, number of other political calculus, where you look for what are called opinion clusters. In other words, large numbers of people who share not just the same view on one issue, but the same views on a range of issues. And you discover a kind of clear profile, if you will. Uh, and what you can identify from that is in pretty much every developed country, seven or eight major opinion clusters, which tend to then be easily groupable into one or two sides on this new alignment. Uh, and what you find in that is the presence of large opinion clusters, where people combine what are conventionally thought of as, quote, right wing, uh, unquote, views on cultural issues, things like immigration, with very left-wing views on economics, or conversely, the mirror image of that, people who are actually you know, hostile or to or sceptical of the welfare state, broadly pro-market, but at the same time, uh, you know, very radical, if you will, in their views about things like the nation-state, national history, national identity, and the like. And so those are the kind of emerging clusters of opinion that you can, you can make out using opinion polling and other sampling measures. And Matthew, one of the kind of the ideas of this realignment theory is that culture and identity becoming more important in determining votes and, and things like that. A skeptic, um, and I'm not one, I, I think that the evidence for this is very strong, but a skeptic might say that, well, it is still actually the economy stupid. And a lot of the, uh, the cultural changes that we've seen, or at least that identity becoming more important, come about because of economic anxieties caused by say you know globalization etc do you buy that that actually it, it is still the kind of the economic issues are actually driving this this cultural shift and it does still come down to the economy and uh, in people's minds and that is the dividing issue or is it more complex than that i mean it's it's complex because they're they're interrelated i think you can easily get though to a false consciousness model of this and and i think often this, this is what the left is doing which is why people were basically duped into voting for brexit and trump against their economic interest when in fact it actually was in their interest it was just not their interests as defined by themselves with respect to the identity and who they see themselves and what, what they want to be and what kind of country they want to live in. So you can still use economic analysis to do that. And the economics can help you understand the nature of the different groups and perhaps to some extent what's driving their identity or and, and their attitudes. But I think their attitudes are ultimately the explainer. Um, and there's, there's quite extensive research, academic research on this by some of the, the leading academics in um, understanding kind of change public opinion terms, particularly um, Inglehart and, and Norris, who've done some quite expansive work on the World Value Survey over the last, they've been doing that survey every five years for the last 30, 40 years. And, and what they've found um, is more or less, it is more about culture than economics when, when, they, when they look at the rise of populism, which is how this often shows itself up, which is the working class kind of going to the popular side, that they find it, it's not particularly when they do all their regressions, it's not particularly well explained by income. Um, it's, it's, it is lower income people, but it, it's more so explained by cultural attitudes um, and, and identity rather than directly by income, especially since a, a lot of people who might traditionally associate with working class actually have perfectly good incomes, whilst a lot of the middle class intelligentsia in London actually might, particularly if you're on the younger side, you might actually have a pretty poor income, particularly after you've just graduated from university. So it's, the income stuff doesn't completely explain it. Um, and I think it's, it's more to do with other, other things. I agree completely with that. Could I just add that it's the really strong correlation is with education, in particular whether or not you're a graduate. Uh, and also, as far as work goes, it's the kind of work you do rather than income. 
that tends to correlate very highly. What I think is going to happen at the moment is that in the aftermath of the pandemic, economic issues are indeed going to come back to the forefront. But, and this is the crucial thing, which is bad news if you're a free marketer or a classical liberal, those arguments about economics are going to be conducted within the framework, if you will, of the new aligning division. So I think, I'm afraid, we're going to see a big move towards people generally thinking that the government should be doing a lot more in the economy. The argument is going to be, should this be done at an international level through agreements between national governments, or should it be done by nation states on their own, each nation state following its own course. I think that's going to be the big argument uh, we're going to have. So we are going to get lots of arguments about economics, but they're going to be conducted within this framework of basically nation states versus supranationalism or globalism. The other thing I'd say is that social democratic parties um, seem to have uh, managed to revive a bit in the last couple of years. So the Danish Social Democrats did pretty well a couple of years ago, and the German Social Democrats, having been flattened their back for the last like 10, 12 years, are actually doing pretty well and are now currently favourites to get the chancellorship uh, in the upcoming election in Germany. Now, I think, however, that is not a revival of the old social democratic coalition that we had in the 1990s or the noughties. What has happened is that social democrats, particularly in Denmark and also in a different way in Germany, have decided to play down the kind of radical left, uh, in identity left, green side of their platform and make a pitch back to their traditional core working class vote. Uh, they've reasserted, if you like, a much more traditional kind of identity. And I think what we will see in Europe in going forward is what I think will come as a painful surprise to many people in the UK, which is a kind of rapprochement uh, between the liberal left, if you will, people like Macron, probably Scholz, who looks like to be the new German chancellor, on the one side, and the uh, national collectivists, as I call them, people like Orban or Kaczynski, uh, on the other side. Uh, and that's, I think, the way things are going to go forward in uh, European politics. I think a lot of the liberal left in Britain who are currently carrying a flame uh, for the EU are going to suddenly fall out of love with their lost love in the next couple of years. Uh, it's going to be quite, you know, a lot of grief, grief going to be uh, expressed spectacularly in the next few years. So I guess the key question for me here is how do classical liberals and libertarians react to this realignment? Obviously, they've been historically more associated with the centre-right, um, with the economy being the kind of central defining issue for, for so long. Um, and, you know, they, they might not be so good on, on social issues and stuff, but they do tend to be pretty sound or have historically been pretty sound uh, by comparison to the alternatives on the economy. Does this realignment mean that we should start to look for new allies who might be maybe uh, moderate or, or even slightly to the left on the economy, but actually are, are fairly pro, say, globalization and, and embrace this uh, liberal cosmopolitan culture? Or actually, should we be continuing to try and influence and, and change and, and stem the tide of national populism within the the right. Obviously, it's it's not an either or, but in terms of where our kind of priorities should lie. Not the second, in my view. I, I would tend to go more for the first. Uh, I think that in, say, in the British context, that the, the Conservative Party is no longer the party you would look to for uh, free market policies, as I think the last you know, month or so at least, uh, or even the last couple of years has shown. The great danger is that we will be left as a kind of isolated remnant, essentially, and that the, the big argument will go on with us shouting on the sidelines. 
I think what liberals have to do is firstly to make, you know, reiterate the old truths, if you will. Secondly, to look to make not so much a strategic alliance with one side or the other as alliances on an ad hoc issue by issue basis with people on either side, I think. On some issues, classical liberals will find themselves more in sympathy with the new emergent globalist liberal left, and other issues more still with the centre-right. But but what we should also be doing, I think, is thinking very seriously about re-exploring certain issues. I think there's a need for a lot of new thinking about a range of issues. Um, There's been a kind of a bit of an intellectual complacency, I think, amongst classical liberals over the last 10 to 15 years, a feeling that, you know, the big arguments have been won, and that's that's a very dangerous mindset for anybody to get into. Uh, And I think there needs to be a lot of new thinking as well about how to apply uh, the principles, if you will, uh, to new challenges. Yeah, I I think, Daniel, you're right to identify this as a massive challenge for those who live on the free market side of things because there's not necessarily a, a natural place um, for us to sit with with our values and principles, particularly I think what we've seen with Boris Johnson, although I think it's a slight misreading to some extent of why he won the Red War. I don't think people in the Red War necessarily voted Tory because they wanted a big state, um, but they might be slightly more comfortable with a big state than traditional Tory voters and therefore their solutions are quite status in response, which is kind of, you know, throwing money around on on infrastructure and other public services that don't necessarily boost these areas economically, doesn't necessarily uh, achieve anything on the supply side, doesn't necessarily create any jobs. So I think those are the kind of arguments to make, which is if you want to achieve these goals, you have to use free market policies if you if you want to lift people up. And the Tories traditionally knew that and and try to see what you can achieve without respect to that. I mean, on social issues, you, you could team up in coalition with, with those on the left, as Steve is also saying. Like, it's, it's not necessarily an either or. I think you're going to end up having to do a large measure of both. But also I think in historical contexts, it's worth noting, particularly in the UK, the Tories have it's almost been an exception to the rule for the Tories to be a kind of a free market leaning party. There's always been a, a, a socialist wing or a paternalistic um, old Tory wing to the party um, up until Thatcher, which is what Thatcher was fighting internally, where a lot of people who, who thought that free markets was a silly idea. So it's not nothing is is assured in that respect. And I think Steve's absolutely right that you just have to keep him making these these liberal arguments um, for, for free markets to, to whoever is going to listen. I mean, I did notice um, in Keir Starmer's leaked essay uh, for the Fabian Society, there was a few bits here and there, at least kind of accepting that the market is the way that generates wealth in a very kind of Blairite sense. So it's not necessarily all lost, although I think Keir Starmer is probably more of an interventionist than, than Blair or Brown. Um, it's, it, there's something to be said for just the truth of the, the facts of the matter. If you, if you want to lift people up, if you want to boost the economy, you're still going to have to choose policies that are most effective. Mm, I agree. I guess in in electoral politics terms, uh, in theory, you know, the the idea, right, we need to form ad hoc coalitions on on issue by issue bases um, as liberals, I think is completely right. But I think it's also necessitated by the fact that we don't actually have a a mirror image of the the more uh, national collectivist conservatives we have. We don't have a, a party that is liberal and cosmopolitan and global or well i mean there's the liberal democrats so we don't have an electorally viable party that is you know <laughs> that, that represents those kind of values on this realignment scale i wonder if that's a kind of uniquely british situation or, or whether actually the kind of realignment that we're talking about suggests that either labor or, or some other party perhaps even the the lib dems comes to represent a greater proportion um of those in a more 
accurate way. Because, I mean, at the moment, you know, Labour still very much in the process of redefining what they are as a party. But from early indications, I can't see them coming out as any sort of great defenders of uh, liberal cosmopolitan worldview. No, I can't, I'm afraid. And the, the, the problem the problem they face is, which is much worse being in the first past the post system than it is if you're a party in a uh, PR system, is that they've got to try and keep two lots of completely reconcilable voters in the same tent, really, if they'd have any chance of winning an election. Uh, in order to win an election, they need to win over middle-class voters in the southeast while regaining ground amongst more traditional working-class voters in the north and the midlands. Uh, and that's an extremely difficult job. I don't envy Keir Starmer his job, actually. He, you know, he's got an extremely hard task ahead of him. The problem is, though, that under our system, it's extremely hard for any party like the Liberal Democrats to actually challenge one of the big two. That the, All kinds of things, and not just the electoral system, also the way the media system works, tends to entrench an existing party in place. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you, sh- you should never say something is impossible in politics. Things can happen very suddenly and very dramatically, given the right random alignment of the stars, if you will. And so it could well be the case that we do see the emergence of a party in the next you know, decade, which is broadly like that. I think in the other parts of the world, we can see such a party uh, clearly emerge in places like Poland, for example, or, or France, uh, or at least a coalition of it. In Germany at the moment, the FDP, which is once again doing pretty well, is quite obviously the party uh, that I think probably all three of us would support if we were German voters. Uh, And there are similar kinds of parties that sort of appearing in other parts of the world. So um, it's like the Netherlands, for example, where the VVD, the Dutch Liberal Party, clearly fits into that cosmopolitan liberal category. So you have, and also D66, so you have to... say that we're in a rather difficult situation here in the UK as opposed to other parts of the world because of the way our electoral system and our media system interact with the the historical legacy of the Labour Party. Well, fingers crossed that the stars do align in the UK because I'd quite like to have a a Liberal Cosmopolitan Party alternative. Um, If not to vote for, then certainly to, to be able to influence uh, policy in a, in a more positive direction. But one area where the stars are most definitely not aligning is the uh, current price level and the risk of inflation, which we're going to move on to for our final topic of the podcast. Inflation is coming. The latest figures indicate that the Consumer Price Index has risen by 3.2%, the biggest jump since records began in 1997, and well above the official 2% target. Uh, that means the Bank of England has to send a letter explaining why they're, they're failing to achieve their goals to the Chancellor. Now, the, the owners have largely blamed the jump on the EDAR's help-out scheme that artificially reduced prices last August. But is there, Steve, perhaps reason to think that we're in set for a broader inflationary pressures that um, aren't necessarily being accounted for in that explanation? Yeah, very much so. Um, it, it's worth pointing out that the overwhelming consensus amongst economists um, about a year ago was that the pandemic was going to be broadly deflationary and that right about now we would be looking at declining prices, uh, not rising prices. Then uh, about six months ago they said, well, yes, we may have rising prices, but not that much. Uh, Now they're saying, well, oh, actually we are going to have quite a lot of inflation, but it's not going to last. Now, if you look at all the statistics, um, it's pretty clear that we are going to see 
some pretty significant inflation for uh, the next year, maybe the next two to three years at least, because quite simply, uh, during the pandemic, there has been a massive and in peacetime, completely unprecedented increase in the money supply. In the United States, uh, broad money, and I emphasize broad money, has increased by 35% in 12 months. Uh, Now, that's an absolutely incredible increase in the amount of money. And unless you think that the amount of money in circulation has no effect on the price level, which would be, in my view, a crazy thing to think, you're going to see this um, feed through into higher prices. Now, the other side of the coin, uh, which makes for a perfect double whammy of a bad sort, is that we're also seeing major disruptions to the supply side because of the pandemic uh, and the way it's interacted with an extremely fragile, we now perceive, Uh, global delivery and supply system. So we're seeing major problems with shipping, uh, with the supply of various raw materials, with supply chains working efficiently and therefore shortages of goods. So we've had on the one hand a decline in the output at the margin of certain products and services and difficulties in supplying them to markets and on the other hand a massive supply in money uh, which means you know you're going to get rising prices and I suspect that Inflation is going to, by the end of this year, be about 6 to 7% in the United States, uh, about 5%, 4 to 5% here in the UK, and it's going to keep on rising in the spring of next year. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, inflation in double figures in the United States by uh, February or March of next year. It's certainly going to be much higher than the Fed expects. Now, the question is, how long is it going to last for? Now, At the moment, all of the central banks have stopped creating large amounts of money. Uh, Their money growth figures are back into what you might call normal territory, broadly in line with the growth of the economy, Uh, which means that it probably isn't going to go on forever. But there's a huge overhang. And that means, I think, that uh, in the long run could actually be a couple of years. So we could be looking at quite a significant period of stagflation next year, certainly. Uh, and in the remainder of this year, uh, which will cause serious challenges for governments everywhere. The big problem, of course, is that the longer this goes on, the more people start to expect it to happen and to change their behaviour in line with those expectations. And once that happens, the central banks have a very, very difficult choice. They can either increase the money supply to respond to those expectations, in which case the inflation becomes embedded, uh, or they can say, well, too bad you're expecting this to happen but we ain't going to create the money that you need for those expectations to be fulfilled but in that case you will have a lot of economic pain because a lot of people will suddenly find as you know gas companies are at the moment uh, that their expectations for the future are not actually accurate and they'll go out of business Mm. It, it seems like we're in a situation where we've had a lot of inflation denial, which I think I define as, oh, well, you know, it's just rising prices in, in secondhand cars, you know, as clothing's gone up a little bit and food and drinks. But, you know, there's no widespread inflation. It's just very specific to different industries. And, of course, you eventually realize the definition of inflation is just a little bit of a price increases across everything, which is, I think, what we're seeing. Um, and then the expectations changing. I think 
it's, it seems like there's a bit of debate though as well about what's kind of causing the inflation. Now, um, Steve, you're, you're obviously kind of with the traditional monetarist school and, and it does make a lot of sense. We've got a lot of money flowing around from all the COVID stimulus. We've got huge amounts of pent up saving that people have, um, trillions and trillions in the bank account that, that they're now willing to go out and spend at least a little bit on. If anyone's tried to book a domestic holiday in the UK, they would have realised just the eye-watering prices of that because people you know, now, now want to spend after a bit of time off. At the same time, I think you've also probably got some supply limitations, be it because of the, the Suez Canal and, and there's just been a massive increase in cost of shipping with China. Um, I, w- I was told this was because although we're still buying things from China, um, they're not buying as much from us and therefore it doesn't make as much sense for the ships to go back empty. They, they, don't, yeah. they like, don't like to go back empty. So they're not sending as many ships because they don't want them to go back empty. Just the cost of shipping um, to Europe has gone up massively uh, and, and all those things add up and you've got all these delays, particularly ones someone tried to buy any furniture um, in recent history, uh, prices go up uh, and, and you just see this, this right across the economy. There's some of our friends, Daniel, who would say, oh, well, what we actually need is a little bit of inflation. We haven't had any inflation for ages. Um, that'll be growth stimulating. In fact, we shouldn't pull up the, the, the handbrake now because we'll, we'll slow down any potential growth. That's only been a previous view of the ASI when we've been talking about NGDP targeting and, and um, Scott Semter's work. Uh, is there a, a counter argument in your head at all, Daniel, that perhaps inflation won't be too bad and maybe it'll all be okay and we just need to allow a little bit of, you know, run the economy at full steam ahead just to fix the potential recession um, lasting any longer? I, 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 could, I could see that for, you know, you're your kind of that argument, I don't, I don't necessarily uh, agree with it, but I can see that argument for you kind of three and four percent. But as Steve was saying, you know, if you're looking at the US and potential inflation rates of 10 or 11 percent, that that for me, I think that there is no rational argument that that can be a decent state of affairs for the economy, both in the short run and as, as Steve mentioned, in the long run, if we find expectations uh, of future inflation adjusting as a result of that. I guess like in terms of you, you mentioned the the other causes and we talked about in the last podcast the labor market and specifically the the sheer amount of of labor shortages that are being experienced in the UK and around the world and of course the kind of you know high number of job vacancies is inevitably going to put upward pressure on wages and and therefore we're, we're going to get um, some sort of inflation as a result of that as well and so you know the kind of cause of the the labor shortage that we talked about in the last podcast um apply in terms of uh, drivers of inflation there the other thing that i'd say on this is that you see uh the kind of way that we measure inflation it took a while for us to adjust that basket of goods to better reflect uh a lot of the changes in um, consumer patterns that we saw during the pandemic so you know it, it there was a certain lag between um us measuring inflation by say the price of cocktails in a nightclub or something like that which obviously didn't make sense during covid and then you know adjusting to measuring it through your um your uber eats grocery order or your netflix subscription or various things that better reflect some of the realities of, of uh, life during the the covid19 pandemic so a lot of the the kind of figures i think when when economists weren't particularly worried about in, inflation were were distorted by some of these these issues with measurement that um, that maybe gave us a false sense of security as to to what the current situ- what the situation on the ground actually was. Matthew, I think the three things you identify are what is driving a rise in the price level at the moment. So supply side hits, uh, pent up savings and demand, and a big 
shot to increase the money supply. Now, two of those things, I think, are relatively short term in the sense, that obviously, those pent up savings are going to be spent into the economy. They'll give a big push to uh, demand for a while, but then it'll peter out because obviously people will uh, either spend all the savings or they'll decide they want to still you know, hold on to them. Similarly, as I said, the central banks are not continuing to expand money in the way in which they did during the lockdowns, the pandemic. That, however, still leaves us with a huge overhang of money relative to supply, which means I think we're looking at about uh, a two to three year episode probably uh, of inflationary pressure. Uh, but it's going to be combined with, rather than growth, rather economic stagnation, because I think it's only beginning to become apparent just how significant the disruption that the pandemic brought to the world's supply chains uh, has actually been. And the problem is that it's combined with other structural changes, such as the impact on world trade brought about by the growing trade war between the United States and China, uh, and the decision, I think, that the Chinese government has clearly made to try and reorient its economy away from a predominantly export-led growth model. Plus, I think, structural problems in things like a lot of world, major world markets, particularly a number of commodities markets, where you are starting to find that the supply is simply not growing fast enough for natural reasons compared to the underlying level of demand. Now, what that means is that you're going to get stagflation. I don't think we're going to get a period where the economy will will grow very fast. You're going to get rather a period of uh, broadly stagnant economic activity combined with rising prices, which is very painful and unpleasant because it means a fall in living standards. Now, governments might still be okay about this, though. Uh, They might well decide to grip their teeth and bear it because the alternative is to cut back that excess money to pull pull a lot of it back in and what that would do is trigger a lot of debt defaults whereas if they allow for a period of let's say four three or four years of inflation what that will do is erode the value of a lot of debts the other big sort of like elephant in the room in this discussion is the enormous amount of in many cases unviable private debt that there is out there Uh, that's why central banks are so unwilling to raise interest rates uh, because if they if they do they will trigger a whole tidal wave of debt defaults and a crash in asset prices now it may be and this is the real you know, bad scenario let's hope it doesn't happen that this happens anyway regardless of what they do because if people start to think that there's going to be significant inflation for a few years they're going to look for the return they get on things like fixed income securities above all government debt to be higher they'll look for a higher yield, which means that the price of bonds is going to fall. uh, And that could trigger off a major readjustment in not just the bond market, but a whole range of asset markets. Now, if that happens, we are looking at some seriously interesting times. It may not happen, though. It may well be that they're able to uh, avoid that. But we'll we'll know in the next year or so whether or not they've managed to avoid it. Yeah, I think it's probably then worth unpacking... um in a kind of remaining few minutes, why does this actually matter? <laughs> I guess it's it's like for a lot of people, particularly somebody who's my age, uh, we've never really had inflation. Uh, we've, we've never experienced what it what it meant economically and why it's so damaging. It, it just feels quite distant for, for a lot of us. And then what are the kind of political implications that are going to come out of that? Well, I mean, it, it's I can remember inflation vividly. Uh, I'm old enough to you know remember the 1970s quite clearly. What it will lead to is, for one thing, a whole lot of labour unrest. Um, 
and and because obviously people will look to protect their living standards uh, by getting higher 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 wages for the work they do, uh, and at the same time also you've got undoubtedly a labour shortage, which is you know a really interesting phenomenon. It, it's not quite clear yet, I think, what is causing this, but it's undoubtedly a real phenomenon. So if you combine that with people uh, feeling the pressure because the price of electricity or other kinds of energy is going up, the price of all kinds of consumer goods is rising, they're going to respond to that in a straightforward way, which is look higher income for their labour. Uh, so you'll get a lot of that. But the other thing is that what inflation does is to cause arbitrary and unpredictable effects uh, it disrupts the working of the price mechanism, essentially. Uh, and so you find that all kinds of uh, what seem to be completely rational decisions suddenly be, so are suddenly revealed as being apparently irrational. Maybe they aren't, though, because it's just that the price mechanism has become slightly deranged. Because when we talk about inflation, we say, oh, we've got 3 or 4% inflation. That's actually a bit of a, a, a miss description if you will because it isn't the case that all prices rise at exactly the same amount that's an average produced by aggregating lots and lots of different levels of price increase and it's the gap between those prices the relative prices in other words that is the really uh, it's the thing that is broken down by inflation because it's relative prices that generate the information signals that you need to know what to do and what not to do in a market economy. And that is disrupted severely by uh, a general rise in the price level made up of lots and lots of different prices going up at different rates. Uh, so that's why inflation is so damaging. And then, of course, it has very big political implications as well, because ultimately it it leads to, I would think, kind of a, a decrease in living standards, more or less, that if, if you feel like your your income can't quite catch up to the bills that you have, um, that's going to drive frustration at politicians. I, I think, if anything, uh, it's something probably Boris Johnson's going to have to be very worried about in a few years' time if they can't solve this issue um, and, and they can't address it. And it probably, I was reading some kind of good stuff, um, thinking about how did we get out of inflation last time? Well, one, it was very painful because you had to put up interest rates quite a lot and that, that's quite expensive to people. But, but two, it took a lot of microeconomic reforms to kind of boost the, the capacity of the economy and um, expand it so that we could repay um, government debt so that we could um, increase our living standards and, and work our way out of inflation. But it doesn't seem like we're hearing much in terms of microeconomic reform from this government. I think just to kind of illustrate the the concept of inflation for for those of us who who weren't um, who who aren't remembering the the kind of bad old years in the the seventies, um, there's a an old adage in in British about oh I'd vote for anyone who would reduce the price of a Freddo back to ten p. So I think that everyone has a kind of a, a broad a, an instinctive understanding of of the impact of uh, inflation on their their living standards and. For that reason, yeah, you're going to see some significant political fallout, um, and especially given you know that the, the current government, the kind of reputation that the Conservatives are supposed to have on sound economic management, uh, if we end up with particularly high rates of inflation here, um, that that's certainly going to undermine that kind of unique selling point that they've used so effectively for so long, um, and and that's going to play out really badly for them in the polls, 100. percent The labour shortage. Um, interaction with this also I, I find this really kind of concerning you basically got uh, much more bargaining power for existing workers to to raise their wages given the the lack of alternative options for employers and they're going to be 
more and more incentivized to to do that um over and over again so you're really going to get a kind of i think a return of some of the kind of labor clashes with with employers that we haven't seen on any sort of mass scale in this country for for quite some time so that's a lots of lots of potential really big risks here um and or I, th- I think I'm just as, as kind of pessimistic as Steve seems to be about the, the prospects for the US as well. I think I think it's worth saying that um, I don't think we'll see an exact rerun of the 1970s because most of the economy is not as unionised as it was then. So organised labour action is going to be uh, less common, except in the public sector. The place to expect maybe strikes or ghost loads in the public sector or the private, most of the private sector. What you will see, however, is this, because... There's a lot of talk at the moment about the gig economy and usually on the lines of how it's an exploitation of workers, uh, lots of discussion of Uber. The other side of that, though, is that the gig economy gives workers a lot of power because it gives them the ability to decide to a great degree when they'll work, how they'll work and who they'll work for. And you can see a lot of this going on. A lot of the labour shortages in certain sectors are being produced by people deciding they're not going to work for the wages they were being offered in those jobs anymore, they're going to go off and do something else. Uh, and a very flexible labour market increases the power of labour relative to capital in that regard, because it increases the range and flexibility, the options open to labour. And I think that it's that which we're going to see. Not so much a lot of strikes, as I say, apart from the public sector, as a lot of people simply deciding, well, I'm not going to do that job anymore. Uh, unless you either improve my conditions or raise my pay. In many cases, I think this is probably a good thing. Now, Matthew mentioned earlier on what we had in the 80s and early 90s was microeconomic reforms to increase the supply side. I think we do need that, but it's interesting to think about what it is. This is what I meant earlier on by talking about challenges for market thinking. I think what we've seen from the pandemic is that a lot of production systems at the moment are over-optimised, they're over-intensive, you will. They make a lot of sense in terms of abstract economic models of efficiency, but they have no redundancy and therefore no resilience when confronted with a challenge. And I think that that particular way of increasing output has reached the end of the road. We need to think of different ways uh, of uh, increasing output, ways which involve perhaps uh, more investment uh, than we've seen over the last 30 to 40 years. This is going to be quite a challenge because, uh, you know, I think we are pushing up against some pretty firm supply side constraints at the moment. So, yes, we've got, I think, a lot of things need to be thought about. Uh, And at the moment, I don't see much thinking on this from any part of the political spectrum. Well, just uh, coming off the top of my head, one of the things that springs to mind is starting to include the uh, virtual economies of, of video games in our GDP figures, a great way of uh, increasing output as people decide, I'm not going to do that job anymore. I'm going to sit at home and uh, mine rare minerals in uh, New Eden. Actually, I think it's it's going to be all about Bitcoin and, and, and mining your Bitcoin. But but on that um, slightly pessimistic note, hopefully uh, you can remember back and think that you, you heard it here first on the pin factory, the discussion about what inflation is actually going to mean over the coming years, or in the in the hopeful case that we're wrong about all this, maybe you can completely forget it and we can uh, move on with our lives as if this, this discussion never happened. But uh, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the pin, the pin factory. Uh, my name is Matthew Lesh from the head of research at the ASI. You've been joined by my co-host and our head of programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as the um, head of education at the Institute of Economic Affairs, the IEA, Steve Davies. 
if you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe and, and rate us generously. And please do tune in again next week for more banter analysis. Mm-hmm.